Welcome to Cinemad, podcast number one. I'm Mike. I started Cinemad as a homemade film zine in 1998 in Tucson, Arizona, to cover underground and outsider cinema. Part of it was the underground, avant-garde movies, uh, what was considered indie cinema then, movies and film festivals, and lost movies. This is before John Cassavetti's films were easily available, for instance. And then another part of the magazine covered that guys. Character actors from history that were great and memorable parts of films. If you heard their name, Elijah Cook Jr., Emmett Walsh, Charles Napier, you might not know who they are. But then if you saw their face, you would say, oh yeah, that guy. So I wanted to know more about all these things, and I started a zine about them, uh, inspired by growing up with punk rock in the 80s, listening to Black Flag, seeing how Discord Records operated as a label, reading Thrasher. I always thought I could do it myself, be creative, and not have to ask anyone for permission to do it and have a real independent vision. In the 90s, the inspiration came from other homemade zines at the time, uh, Dishwasher, Exile Osaka, and especially Giant Robot and Razor Cake. So I made Cinemad the same way, uh, on a computer in my kitchen, Xeroxed, then working later with a real printer, and using Tower Records and independent bookstores to distribute it, hoping that if I wanted to read about all these things, maybe 50 other people did too. After six print issues from 98 to 2002, Cinemad moved to the internet as a blog full of interviews, and it's still there, currently at iblamesociety.com but how else would you have found this podcast if you weren't there? And now podcasts feel like the way, the best way to learn about a film or filmmaker, hearing them speak directly. The internet has definitely made things more available and for the better, I think, but it's still hard to find underground cinema and unusual filmmakers unless you know where to look. That need for curation is as strong as ever to wade through the online swamp. So each week, Cinemat will have a new podcast interview, and I reserve the right to break the mold of whatever I did the previous week. I thank you for that. This first podcast interview is the same person that was on the first issue cover, Nina Menkes. Nina's made feature films over the past 25 years in Los Angeles and is one of a few fo- uh, female directors who also gets to write and edit her own work, not to mention she usually shoots on 35mm film. Her sister, Tinka, usually acts in the film and works very closely with her on the production. Nina describes her style as synthesizing inner dream worlds with harsh outer realities. The plots of her movies sound fairly straightforward, even like traditional mysteries. In Magdalena Viraga, which Nina made in 1983 while at UCLA, her first feature, uh, we follow a prostitute who kills her pimp. In Queen of Diamonds from 1991... We learn about the life and times of a car dealer in Las Vegas. And in Bloody Child from 1996, Nina explores the true-life case of a Marine who had killed his wife. But it's the way that Nina makes the films that's totally unique, uh, with really long takes, a deep visual atmosphere, and uh, intricate sound design to create a sort of metaphysical world to look at the stories and characters. Menkes really hits a larger meaning and an intense tone with her style, dealing with the interior of the characters and the situations. Nina has two new recent movies, Phantom Love from 2007 
which is described as a surreal psychodrama about a young woman trapped within a suffocating family, and her new film, Disillusion, which is loosely inspired by crime and punishment. It combines an almost surreal fairy tale energy with brutal black and white realism to explore the condition of violence which permeates contemporary Israeli society. Disillusion won the award of the best drama in Israeli cinema at the 2010 Jerusalem International Film Festival. Both Disillusion and Phantom Love, along with a retrospective of her older features, are currently playing across the country in movie theaters distributed by Cinemad. Hey, look at that. So let me apologize in advance for coughing in the background so much during this interview. And also, it took me a minute to figure out how the recorder works. So uh, the start might be a little slow. Okay. Are we starting over? Now we're, now we're rolling. <laughs> you better ask me something. Welcome, welcome to the first podcast for cinema. Much like how I did the magazine, <clears throat> fairly half-assed and Xeroxed. But now we've learned how to use the recorder. The, uh, the numbers are moving forward. So, and much like the first issue of Cinemad, uh, Nina Menkes. Um, <coughs> you know, in the, the term, we'll come back to what we were talking about before before we started recording. Um, the, the, one of the terms that, uh, that I was doing with the magazine was like uh, cult, underground, avant-garde, sticks and stones. Do you feel like you have a label for your films or, is it, or you just feel like you're a filmmaker? Well, I guess that label would fit my films, you know. Um, not not necessarily that I labeled them that way, you know, but the world labeled them that way. Um, but growing up, so did you even have, like, knowledge of what an experimental film was? No. Even in Berkeley, no. Not really. I mean, the uh, I, I, I think that probably the biggest thing that helped me in my filmmaking um, is that my mother hated the idea of TV. She just didn't want to have a TV in the house. We never had a TV. So growing up, I, I had no TV at all, ever. Wow. And I got used to having no TV. So to this day, I, I have a TV in my home, but I just use it for DVDs. I just, I'm not in that habit of turning on a TV. And um, so I had zero input of popular culture on that level. And, and in terms of actually seeing movies, um, well, when I was in high school, I think um, I was shown uh, last year at Marienbad, mm -hmm. which which really knocked me out. And um, I grew up in Berkeley. We went sometimes to the <coughs> PFA, Pacific Film Archive. Yeah. I, I saw some Werner Herzog films, I remember. Um, and I saw uh, Red Desert by Antonioni when yeah. I was in uh, uh, undergraduate saw a couple of films but it wasn't you know when I started doing my own films I was not film literate and don't forget like when I was growing up mm -hmm. DVDs streaming online and video stores was not did not exist you know you couldn't go right. rent a <coughs> film that that's like a you know relatively new thing so you had right. to wait until you know Fellini's eight and a half came around to your local whatever you know what was there uh, even good what since it was Berkeley, there was some repertory theater. Well, there, there was, but, but, you know, it wasn't something that I, like, went to a lot, or I didn't even, you know, I didn't really, I wasn't one of these, like, I wasn't a cinephile, particularly. I mean, particularly at all, right. you know? <laughs> and so when I started making my own movies, which was when I went to UCLA Film School, mm -hmm. um, I was just kind of making my own things that I felt and that I saw, you know, without a whole lot of reference. 
Mm-hmm. And, and over the years, you know, I slowly got a film education by being in film school and then by starting to teach and by just over the years, you know, catching up on, on classics. Like, you know, I, thought, I think I saw Fellini's Eight and a Half when I was like 25. You know, I, I, I didn't know these films, you know. And, um, and so my films got uh, categorized as experimental or underground or avant-garde because other people found them different but for me they were just me and they were not different than me and mm. i didn't have much of a reference point so right yeah so as a, w- is there some point where you were like oh i should make films because of course the cliche is we grow up we see films oh i want to be a filmmaker because mm-hmm. i like films i like the watching films i want to tell a story that way were you doing even like still mm-hmm. photography no. or something yeah i was i was a f- I, mm. I was a still photographer and i loved that and then I also, I was a dancer. Mm. And I thought I really wanted to be a dancer. Still photography was just something that I did, you know, for mm. myself. I, and I always was good at it. And it was kind of something I loved. But I never thought of it uh, as a profession. And then the way I got into film is that I actually I was living in London in this house with a bunch of dancers. I was a dancer. Wow. And um, there was this one of my roommates, uh, was a gay guy and his boyfriend was in film school and his boyfriend probably should not have been in film school because he had no ideas he, he was supposed to make a film and he had he didn't have an idea he was like i don't know what to do and i was like well i have an idea you know let's let's do this dance film that was my i because i was in dance right. you know so he's like okay you know what's your idea and then i just kind of made up the whole thing you know the choreography the set design you know i i kind of created the whole the whole film and then he came in and filmed it mm-hmm. and later when i saw it i just got really excited and i was like you know this is cool uh-huh. and um and then uh <coughs> it's funny too because man i hate dance film oh yeah yeah well i i don't like dance film <coughs> but that's because people are always like and because of my job i've seen a bunch and it's usually people will just They'll do two things. They'll do one of two things. Either they'll just film it flat, and it's and then you know people usually don't have good dancers that they're filming because it's regular people and it's right. so boring. Right. Or they try to get so inventive. You're like, well, you're a f- close up of her face, so I can't even tell she's dancing right. or not. Right. But how, how was your dance yeah. film? Was it like that? Well, it was. It was. Um, <clears throat> like it you was, said, you actually thought about set design and stuff. Yeah, I had a whole set design and. Mm-hmm. Um, Actually, this was in London, and, and we had no money, so I came up with this. I actually, I shouldn't admit this, but I, I went into this huge department store, and <clears throat> I gathered these uh, huge bouquet, so to speak, of, like, feathers and these long, giant, um, I don't know what to call them, sort of plants that are mm-hmm. that are dried, and then they're dyed different colors, you know, these kind of... It was this giant, giant bouquet that I wanted for the set, and I had no money. I was a student, and I just walked right out the door with it. <laughs> that was a part of the set design. So, um, uh, yeah, it was you know it was a, it was a it was a dance film, but it got me it got me in the film bug. You know, I, I kind of had a had a sense, and then. Um, I worked in the Spanish TV station, and I did a lot of camera for them. Really? Yeah. Where was that? In San Francisco. And, yeah, that was later. And then, but I basically, when I got to UCLA Film School, 
which was a wonderful excitement when I was accepted, um, I felt like all my bizarre talents like came together. Like, because I, I knew dance and choreography, I knew like movement and sound. You know what it means to put movement to sound, and I, I understood photography, and uh, and I understood dream life because that was what I was always into. And somehow it was like all my strange idiosyncratic kind of talents seemed to come together perfectly for for film, you know, mm -hmm. and it was really fun. So and then that's it. I never never looked back, never really <laughs> changed my style of filmmaking. Right. You know, I don't think I've I never changed my lifestyle. Right. You know, <laughs> I mean You stopped dancing. Like, well, only because I had an injury, and now I do yoga. I switched right. over to yoga because I had an injury. And then, so, you know, I do yoga, I make films, and, you know, I had, uh, until like a month ago, I had the same couch in my house that I had since I was like 20. Because <laughs> I just like, can't, you know, no time for well, yeah, buy getting, furniture. You, you've got the paycheck of an avant-garde oh filmmaker, that's yeah. why. But uh, that's interesting, yeah, because we mentioned um, before I decided to turn the recorder on um, <laughs> that Magdalena Viragos. 25 years old now incredible <clears throat> but you definitely locked on very very fast to the kind of atmosphere and the kind of quote-unquote story that you wanted to tell and so once you got into film once you started making the film did you just realize like i mean in your head it's like okay this is the type of poetry i want to write um it was really a totally kind of organic process which i i i think that my films have stayed the same on that level that mm -hmm. it's been an organic process to me mm -hmm. you know um you know i just actually you know i i'm i'm doing jungian psychoanalysis right now and i just like today you know i was talking with my analyst about my last film and um she was like you know it's very dangerous you know to be have an emotional involvement like you know with your material and with your actor that's mm. so you know that's so intense and i'm like well um that's how that's how i work you know <coughs> i mean right. my it's 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 very 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 personal very deep work that's from a really deep place and it it never had anything to do with um you know somehow having having an idea necessarily of a film it was more like the films have always been for me like a way of active dreaming and a way of like tapping into these other other levels of reality and just filming them mm -hmm. you know and that's maybe a gift that that I have that I that I that I just had that I that I can do that and and I really have of course I've gotten older I'm a more mature person you know whatever but I don't think that, um, you know, I don't think Magdalena Viraga is any less powerful today than 25 years ago. It's, it, it, it's really isn't, you know, it's, it's um, because it comes from a totally different place and it has nothing to do with the year that it was made. The power of that film has nothing to do with the year that it was made. Right. We were talking about um, <coughs> you, you consciously don't put something in a time and place other than. Uh, a reference to Iraq War and the new one, or in Phantom Love. In Phantom Love, yeah. Well, uh, place. I'm not. I'm not sure. I would say I don't reference place because I made. You know, a couple mm. of the films have really been about place. Like Queen oh, of true. Diamonds has really been about Las Vegas on many levels, and 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 my new film Dissolution is for sure about Israel. But 
Um, so, so a lot of the films actually have a strong sense of place, but the thing that for sure I try to consciously kind of pull out is, is uh, reference to a specific, you know, year or specific, even a specific five or ten year period, which I, which I very purposely pull out um, through costume design and set design that I, I want things to be kind of iconic or, 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 or um, almost dreamlike in, a, in an almost abstracted in a way. You know what I mean? So, but I think that's maybe one of the things that's unusual about my films is that they're both abstracted, but then they're they're kind of really real at the same time. They're, they sort of have a documentary quality, but but they're they're it's very abstracted. So, uh, yeah, we were saying before, like I mean, let's say a film like Dazed and Confused, which I really enjoyed um, since I grew up in Berkeley as a teenager, and it felt just you know really really right on but that's for sure not the kind of film I've ever made or don't have interest to make because I try to connect to political realities in a very archetypal I guess would be the word way and right. and, and and on a level that's a, that's kind of below or above or whatever word you want to use the you know the, a certain kind of quote-unquote realistic reality mm-hmm. so when you're dealing with actors how do you <clears throat> do you simply describe what they should do how do you speak with them when when your subject matter is obviously not only physical but mostly metaphysical right well for example like with phantom love um my actress um to audition her because uh, I, I had seen her in a film and i thought she was really really Mm-hmm. good and I had a feeling she was the right one and then uh, I thought well I better actually audition her for the kind of thing I want to do and um, I had her uh, I said you know I want you to um, sit entirely still in front of the camera the video camera for five minutes but you're in a boiling rage but I, I don't do anything I want to feel it you know mm-hmm. And, like, the first time she did it, she couldn't not do anything. She came up with all these little things to do. And I was like, no, you can't move, but I want to feel it, you know. And so I tried to, and then, you know, she succeeded in doing that. And I felt she could do the film. So, I mean, of course, with Tinka, who I worked with, you know, for many years, and then and then with David Fire, who I made the last film with, um, they were more, like, bonded to the part on a really deep level. But regardless, what I always try to do is get into the, the, the sort of primal emotion that's happening and not pay attention to, um, you know, what they, what they call business, you know. And, and so just, like, get the person really, really tuned into the, to the primal event, the primal emotional, psychic event that's happening and then kind of let them kind of go free within that container, you know, so like the container of, mm-hmm. of, uh, so, um, it's, uh, it's, it was really a process of working with the actors to get them to like, just drop their energy completely down into their gut and totally out of the head, like no head action. Mm-hmm. <coughs> and was it different working with like, I mean, assuming the, the Phantom Love actress was more trained than Marina, right? 
Yeah, she was trained. As yeah. opposed to all those years working with Tinka, which it was just an undeniable connection you guys had. Right. Well, Tinka, I mean, besides Tinka's sort of a natural genius actress, she's just so, so, so good. And then on top of that, you have our personal connection, which was deep, and then the the material of the films is deep and so the whole thing is is very connected because it's like on some level we're we're working out our our whole family history on some profound level you know um and and you usually i can't remember if she's always credited or not but you feel like you're making the film with her she's not just an actress for you i definitely felt that you know um and she always uh really preferred to to only be the actress you know in terms of of the credits because she was like it's it's really your film it's your thing which is true but um however yeah for me those films were made with her in a in a very profound partnership plus she happens to be a genius uh in terms of cinema like really Mm -hmm. like radical mind and um like you guys would talk about other films? No, no, not or? other films, but um, our own films, like her mm-hmm. ideas for editing, you know? Oh, okay. Like, you know, she just, she would come up with things that are just so out of the box, you know, like the editing of Queen of Diamonds, that concept was her concept, mm. that, you know, that that crazy structure. You the 17-minute Yeah, the 17-minute cardio yeah. scene. That was her idea, you wow. know? That was fucking genius. Yeah, so she's like she's like cinematically extremely sophisticated and but it's not even cinematically sophisticated although it is also that but but that she could like tune in to like the deep deep thing that was going on always, you know, and be like, well the essence of what's going on here is XYZ, you know, and then that has to be expressed in the editing. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, the films were non-referential to cinema outside of itself. Mm-hmm. So that it, I, I think that's what makes the films unusual is that they they just what we were trying to do, and what mm-hmm. I think we succeeded to do is to express you know very precisely a certain like emotional state without reference to anybody else's films or anything else that goes on in cinema. It's just like I want to express this. You know, and um, and so the films have have this really really strange way of the shooting and the editing and everything's very strange, but they're powerful because they're held together by a psychic truth that's really you know like really serious. You know, Mm -hmm. then Phantom Love I think is a film that has the most reference to other cinema. You know, that has some, some con- really does reference, you know, right. the history of cinema here and there, you know, many different ways. But before that, mm-hmm. I, I mean, my films, I don't think they referenced anything. They were just really my own thing. Yeah, no, uh, other than Bloody Child referencing a real event you were inspired by. Oh, yeah, but I mean, but c- that's cinematic but reference. But cinema, no, yeah. And, but Phantom Love also, like, really hits on your other films. Totally, yeah. yeah and yeah. you think it's even kind of, well, I mean, besides the obvious, a casino. Like that's actually a character that's through. Yes. All the films. Definitely feel that um, that that the character that started with Tinka, my sister, um, you know, in our very first film, Soft Warrior, Great Sadness, Magdalena, Queen of Diamonds, Bloody Child. Mm-hmm. You know that character. Um, th- that's a very long discussion to to 
to track how how that character changes but it's it's without a doubt the same character and it is the basically you know the inner a, f- a figure of the an inner feminine inside me mm-hmm. you know that was really deeply deeply alienated and, and living in some kind of psychic ice cube and and that character um in phantom love uh which was 2007 um, that same character does, you know, achieve um, a level of, of melting of the ice cube and kind of connecting back into the light. After hitting bottom, I would say, with the bloody child, which is totally fragmented, totally suicidal energy. Mm-hmm. Probably my most scary film, I think. And did you feel that while you were making it, or is it something you feel when you're done and you're watching it? As a done player? and watching it. Then you start, it starts hitting you on a different Yeah, I, I, I don't think I could have made it if I was feeling it because it would have, sure. I would have had to go to the hospital. <laughs> There's that. Yeah. And then, because <clears throat> I can't remember if we recorded it while we were talking about it, but you said there was no TV. Like, what oh, yeah. were your parents? I mean, you're in Berkeley. Right. So you're around media, you're around popular culture, but do you think you, because you didn't have a TV? working in the house was that a shield against just sort of oh, I the just, onslaught of yeah i mean i just think that you know i mean when you think now what it's like with the computer mm-hmm. and everything streaming online and and even before before we had streaming online you know we had video stores and dvds and all that that's rel- relatively new mm-hmm. uh reality that people growing up you know you know, a teenager can go to the video store and rent, you know, X, Y, Z, like anything they want to see. And um, that was not the case when, you know, um, when I was growing up, you know, if you didn't catch, you know, Fellini's Eight and a Half when it came to the corner repertoire for one day, (laughs) then you had to wait two years and it might come again, you know, and you couldn't like go rent it anywhere. It wasn't like that, you know. So... (coughs) Consequently, I, you know, with no TV and, and very limited uh, access to seeing anything um, outside of like a class or something, at, at UC, mm-hmm. you know, um, I, I didn't have a lot of exposure to kind of mm-hmm. quote unquote, you know, standard narrative, uh, you know, storytelling. And so I'm grateful for that because it wasn't like then my own films were not so much against anything that I had seen, but they were simply just my own expression mm-hmm. in reference to myself. Right. You know. Right. What do you look at? <laughs> so what did t- you and Tinka do for fun? Just <laughs> sat in your room, just <laughs> dressed in gray. Bouncing one ball against the wall. Yeah. <laughs> you mean instead of watching TV? <laughs> right, right. Not to be this. Oh well, but I, I did know. grow up well, that go. way. So. Yeah, well, we had a lot of fun in my neighborhood. I mean, we played capture the flag, and yeah. uh, you know, we did things that kids do outside, like run around, climb trees, and yeah. you know, capture the flag. I remember that. And then I had a mm. witch school when I was when I was like. 10 or something you know that way that you mean yeah. that you i was enrolled the head in which no i had or you I had created the, yeah i created it and i was the witch head witch and <coughs> then I had the, the younger kids were my students and i taught them spells and incantations and wow yeah it was that was really great is that before dungeons that, and dragons that, <laughs> i don't even what's that seriously dungeons and dragons is that a, is that that board game yeah well 
<clears throat> and there's snakes all those snakes and ladders. No, no, that's cool too. But um, snakes and ladders that probably should be outlawed for making children witches. No, Dungeons and Dragons. It's uh, I think it was mostly dudes. Oh, the dude thing. <clears throat> but okay. it's like you play a magician or a druid and or a swordsman. And you have it's all it was all paper. It wasn't like a video game. A few uh. there's a few video games, but you actually have these weird sided dice, like not just a six sided dice, but a twenty sided dice, oh, wow. a twelve sided dice, and you roll them for different reasons. You get into fights with ogres and elves, and oh, you go okay. through dungeons and you I try did, to I find didn't know, it. I didn't know about that game. Really? No. It's I think it's mostly with guys. Dudes, I ain't have yeah. any girlfriends. So if. Uh, so but no, so you just started your witch school on your own. <laughs> yeah. Right. Did you have a logo? No, no. Uh, did you have rules like a rule book? I had a spell book <laughs> it's, that I made. Right. Yeah, it's pretty rad. I, I really have to like. You didn't keep it, did yeah, you? Yeah, sure, I kept it. You got it. Oh. Yeah, yeah, you got to see it. It's <coughs> we gotta get that online. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> no, no, I think it's private. No, it's it's pretty classic though. Yeah, yeah, and then yeah, I gotta find that. It's somewhere. How many kids? How many students did you have? I just had a few, and I put a. I put an ad at the uh, at the at the co-op, you know, in in in, in Berkeley. It was called the co-op. That's like Whole right. Foods of them. Yeah, yeah. And they had like a little bulletin board, you know, where people would put little. So it was like which school call, you know. <laughs> I got this guy, and it was fun. People called. Well, one guy called. <coughs> oh my God, was he? Well, a he kid was like or ten. Yeah, he was. He was a kid. <coughs> oh, that's no, awesome. no adult. <laughs> it yeah, was a kid thing. That happens today. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, that was crazy. I gotta find that spell book. Yeah, <laughs> explains so much. Uh, and was Tinka younger or older? She's younger. So you made her be in the school. Yeah, she was in the school, of course. <laughs> was she treasurer? Did you give her a good job at least? No, poor Tinka. She probably thinks I tortured her. You know, thinking God knows what she had to do or eat or swallow potions or who knows. You know. Did you make like I, won't, I? We don't have to talk about this too long, but it's fascinating. Did you make potions? Did you have? Yeah, actual? we made potions. You know. And um, I don't know that they worked, but you know yeah, we made that doesn't them. Matter, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you believe <laughs> they worked, <laughs> and then so yeah, so mostly I mean because it's such an easy cliche. I think people I think about what I think about experimental film before I knew what it was, you know, and I just figured it was people who were forced to like read a lot, and their all their uh, all their family were professors. And they look down on mainstream film, but it, right. the more and more you no, talk to people, no. it's like it's it's way more vast and with strange sort of uh, influences than that. It's not just like yeah, I saw Bruce Conner, so then I became this. Right. In fact, it's I never, never saw any of those films. Uh, hmm. I never saw any of the classic experimental films till I was way late, late twenties, like w- way late into my own filmmaking. Because hmm. I, I. Oh, not even at UCLA. Uh, not that much hmm. you know it wasn't it wasn't you know I started seeing at least the classic films that you know the classic great films you know like mm-hmm. The Conformist and eight, eight and a Half and you know like things that I like I hadn't seen you know right and uh, I can't remember you know just all the great you know Antonioni and, <coughs> and then what and did you feel like a connection to that yes <coughs> yeah yeah, I felt a total connection to that, and I felt a connection to uh, when I saw Chantal Ackerman's, you know, Jean Dielman, which everyone thinks Magdalena Virago is influenced by Jean Dielman, but I saw Jean Dielman after 
I made Magdalena Virago, but then I was like, wow, you know, and then I saw some Tarkovsky at the Fox Venice, remember? <laughs> yeah, yeah, Rafik. Yeah. yeah. He showed Stalker, you wow. know, and I was like, holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that was like blew my mind. So I was just like getting like really, but the truth is that even st film students today, you know, a lot of them haven't seen this stuff. Well, it's, I mean, it's better that way anyway. It's not like you can go out and recreate any of that. Tarkovsky or Brisson. I mean, that's like, whether you like them or not, you can't just go out and replicate that and have it be good. No, you can't. It's not about technique. No, it's not about technique. Do you feel like in, in the new one in Disillusion, speaking of technique, now this is the first one that's on HD, right? Yes. So with, with all the other films up to the Super 8, 16, and then... Is Queen 35 millimeter? Queen's 35. Bloody Child's 35. Yeah, and Phantom is 35. And so how did you, I mean, was it as simple as going to school, then you learned this sort of, like, why not work on video all that time? Well, all that time, we never had HD. You know, HD is new. Right. And video, frankly, you know, looked like hell until really recently when it right. started looking like great you know <laughs> like, but 35 is also like you could have done 16 that whole time well, for relatively I, less cost did you feel what did you so. feel the difference between that well the 35 image i mean it's so 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 much better and not only the image but the sound quality mm -hmm. you know and besides that i have to say that i always felt that i wanted my films to have you know really wide distribution i never really identified myself on any level as an experimental filmmaker or like in a, or a filmmaker whose films should like be at film forum you know i wanted you know mm -hmm. um like lemley kind of exposure and runs from the from my first film you right. know i always i always saw myself more in that direction as opposed to you know the super avant-garde um, experimental crowd who I, I love them and they're mainly the people <laughs> who love me but i right. i never identified really that way you mm -hmm. know i don't identified much more with the you know experimental narrative classic like antonioni and Mm -hmm. you know right and now um in the new one in disillusion this is is this did this come from spending time in israel or was it uh you know do you say it's influenced by crime and punishment but it's not a literal retelling of it um how much time had you spent in tel aviv and how much did that influence it was that before or you realized you want to make this film and then you went and spent time there? no i went i just i went there um i i got a fulbright grant to teach there at tel aviv university in the in the in the film department and had you gone for a year had you gone to israel before that well uh, my family's Sahara. actually from israel mm -hmm. my, my family um came immigrated to the united states from israel i mean my family my, talking about my parents right and um uh i was i was born and raised here but we would always go to israel like every summer and i speak oh, okay. hebrew fluently um i've studied arabic also for many years uh, although i still cannot speak it fluently at all but Mm -hmm. um, so that whole part of the world is a heavy part of my life, and I have a lot of very close friends there, the people that I'm really bonded to. <coughs> so um, I I got this grant to, this Fulbright grant to be there for a year, and um, I got this apartment um, in Yaffa, which is the Arab area of Tel Aviv, mm -hmm. and I, 
I really hadn't planned to make a film there particularly. Mm. And I, then, but I'm like, well, I'm here. My God, I should do something. And I, I thought I'll just do a little, like, I'll get a little video camera and I'll make a documentary on my neighborhood, on the cats in the neighborhood, because there's like tons and tons and tons of stray cats, like tons, you know. And, um, and then that, then I just kind of got by, really, it was extremely uh, random if you believe in random, which I don't, but, you know, I, like, started reading Crime and Punishment because I was looking for an English book to read, and this friend of mine had it. Oh, wow. And I started reading, and I was like, oh, fuck, this is so perfect for Tel Aviv now, you know? Yeah. And and then I, I went to this monastery um, just to get away from... Television. I went to the monastery for, you know, five days or something. Silent monastery. This Trappist monastery between Jerusalem and Israel. Silent Trappist monk. They have little guest rooms. You know, no TV, no radio, no, no music, complete silence. And um, I went there and I really, uh, I mean, I have to say the film sort of came to me like a revelation, including the last scene with the horses, which I saw when I was in the church of the, the Trappist monks they have these services with gregorian chants that's the only sound you know and i was mm. in there and i really saw like those horses coming and um so i wrote it and then um you know meanwhile i had gotten uh, friends with this uh, my neighbor mm. um david fire oh shit <coughs> can edit that out Sorry. Well, Should we backtrack? Yeah. Hold on. I gotta get some water though too. Okay. Here it works. Uh, so now there's no way. Yeah. But how did you meet Dee Dee? Um, the, the lead of dissolution. The lead of dissolution. Um, I met him. Uh, he. Well, I had actually, I had actually met him. Uh, through uh, a mutual friend, a filmmaker in. In New York, uh, a friend of mine that I knew from film school called Mark Lafia um, introduced us. But <clears throat> the way that I kind of re-met him was uh, I was walking along the streets in Yafo three days after I moved into this apartment. I hear someone say, Nina, I turned around and there he was. Mm. And anyway, it turned out I was like living 30 meters away from him. Wow. And so... You, you had know, met him previously. I had met him city. previously, but then I, you know, it was like... It, it felt like cosmically arranged that, that he was right there. And then, um, you know, we started sort of hanging out. And, and then I, I ended up writing this script without knowing a whole lot about him, uh, knowing very little about him, really, because I, I didn't really know him barely, slightly, when, when I wrote the script. And, um, and then when he, and I offered him the role because he seemed to, like, fit it. You know, he seemed to be this kind of this natural the character and and then he said my god my whole life i've really felt that i was raskolnikov and and it really spoke to him and and then over time as i got to know him much better and where we made the film together and everything um i saw how how deeply resonant the the film and the script was both to me personally because that's all i i don't make films unless they're deeply personally re resonant to me and to him and 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 so that was pretty pretty you know uncanny actually the way that all came together mm -hmm. <laughs> that, that 
you feel that there is no randomness or i mean how much i have to say that i feel there is no randomness yeah i i mean uh i mean how much do we just um warp what is available for us to make it work for us and just everyday life or i mean it's hard enough making a film as it is but yeah like you know i mean you know that's a pretty cosmic question but um yeah, please answer it quickly. Yeah, yeah. Explain the mystery of the universe. Um, well, let's but, well, let's just take. <laughs> come on, this is my first podcast. <laughs> no, well, take it, take it to, um, take it more to like. I mean, it is. I mean, forget the kind of scene that we're in. If you have millions of dollars, it's still hard to make a film. Yeah, it's you, if you have. We have. I've had friends. You've had friends that have made film after film after film. It doesn't mean the next one's just gonna pop and no, happen no you know Definitely but do you not. feel like that working within a film getting something going are you stuck with what's going to happen with luck and randomness how much can you really tweak okay I, I i really have to tell this story speaking okay. of like there is nothing random Please. on planet earth because it's it's so uncanny with this solution and i i have to say i'll tell this story because it's so unbelievable but I, I would say with every single film that I've made, there's been equal miraculous, you know, stories that makes you feel like, you know, there is a higher power, you know, like, and, and it, it's as real as this table. But what happened with dissolution, besides that, you know, God arranged for, for, for David Fire to be like 30 meters from my house, who was the perfect lead actor for the movie. Um, and I wrote the script and I got, um, most of the money assigned to me by uh, or given to me by yeah. a, uh, the Rabinovich Foundation, which in Israel is like a government fund. But we had um, about a third of the budget missing. And the budget already was extremely low. <laughs> okay. Right. But I, I contacted, <coughs> you know, quite a few producers in Israel and they all said, well, the budget is extremely low, but without this last third, I mean, it's too low. In other words, you know, you can't make it with just this amount of money that you got from the foundation. You really need another, you know, another. They just chunk. They didn't want all the risk by themselves. They, basically. I don't, I don't really know why, where they got that limit right. on on the money they gave me, but it was that was the most. It seems you fair know, they that wouldn't like, go up. Actually, yeah. you know, they wouldn't go up more than this. You know, and. Uh, and so I had I had this chunk of money, you know, missing, like approximately a third, uh, or maybe it was a quarter, uh, of the total budget was missing, and I had to return to the United States. Um, I had I was just going there for a year, and the budget of the film was very low. There was no salary for me involved, zero, literally zero. Um, I had to return to the United States to, for my job teaching, and there was there was just a few months left. You know, and I'm like, if I don't find this extra money, I'm going to have to return, you know, the whole amount that I got from the Rabinovich Foundation because of this little tiny amount that's missing, mm -hmm. relatively tiny amount. And I was just like crazy. And I didn't know what to do. So I was like sending emails to like everyone in L.A. that I knew like, oh, my God, don't you want to help with this groovy film, you know? And... Um, <clears throat> Anyway, to make a long story a little bit shorter, um, there was a very short amount of time. And as you know, with film financing, things do not happen fast. They just don't. You know, people think about it, and then read the script, take it, da, da. you know, you can't just get, you know, $30,000 in two seconds. But I needed to get it fast, and I needed it. And um, 
So I sent emails to all these all these people, and um, this woman that I knew from USC, um, <clears throat> where you taught for a while, uh, where I taught for a while, quite a long time ago, um, she had always said, you know, I would really love to produce one of your films, uh, Rebecca Hartzell, and um, you know, I just sent her an email along with along with a lot of other people, and I really hadn't been in touch with her or anything. Um, and she said, you know, I have the feeling that Michael Huffington is, is going to love this project. Do you, and she said to me, do you know how to get in touch with him? And, and I was like, well, no, <laughs> I have no clue. And she goes, well, I also have no clue. And I said, well, guess we won't be getting in touch with him, you know? What, and and, then, and then, did she tell you why she thought about She just had this feeling. Him. Hmm. You know that he would be the Does one, he, like, and she she had she had met him yeah. at some point in the past, you know, and um, and uh, I was like, well, I can't really help you. I have absolutely no idea, and I'm in Tel Aviv anyway, you know, and I, I wouldn't know I wouldn't know where to start. And then, like you know, ten days later, she was like, I found out how to get in touch with him. She sent me an email, and I was like, great, you know. I still thought that's not going to happen. Um, and anyway, and finally, what happened is like a f- just a few days later, she she called back and said, "Well, he's agreed um, to give the money." And why? Because first of all, he had just been driving across country and listening in his car to Crime and Punishment on tape when he got her call or her email. Wow! And so he felt that was a sign. And so he, without meeting me, without talking to me on the phone, nothing, just on the basis of that and what Rebecca told him about my work, he wired the money over to Tel Aviv within like 48 hours, and we went into pre-production. We shot the film. Mm, wow. And he hadn't, <coughs> he didn't know your previous work at all? No, he just saw the website and, yeah. and read some stuff about it, and he hadn't talked to me, and he hadn't heard of me before Rebecca. And it was it was just like a divine intervention, and I'm I'm really happy to say that uh, when he finally saw the film, oh, he was yeah. really happy. Oh, about that's it. good. Yeah, yeah, he <laughs> loved it. So so I was I was really really pleased. <coughs> I mean, but the fact that that she came up with this uh, mm-hmm. person who was listening to Crime and Punishment on tape, you know that I mean it was it was beyond impos- impossible that 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 could happen. Right. But then do you worry <clears throat> that, like, oh, God, so nothing will work the way you plan it? <laughs> what do you mean? Like, like, what happens when you plan on something and then it doesn't, it falls through? It's like, are you just like, oh, I got to hope for randomness? Do you feel like... Well, it's but it's not random. I mean, it's right. like... You just have enough faith that something's going to happen. <clears throat> well, I do. Maybe it, it's I, optimism is I a good word for yeah, it. Yeah, I don't know if I have faith. I've just seen, I've seen so many examples of of things, you know, almost being arranged in a, in a, what feels like a magical way, you mm-hmm. know, that it's, that I've, you know, I have to believe that there's a pattern here, even though I can't discern it. Mm-hmm. <coughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's only frustrating when it doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> but it's a, a lot to do with our scene, uh, experimental or whatever, underground, horrible terms. But like, <clears throat> it was once you start getting into these types of films, because 
it ain't on TV. Yeah. And usually it might be in your film class, but it ain't always in film school. Yeah. And then when you see something and you have a connection to it, you're like, oh, that's really interesting, and I've never seen anything like it before. Yeah. And whatever, like, I'm not a poetry fan. I'm not, um, I'm not into certain, like, avant-garde music. But for avant-garde film, I really attach to it. And then it's like, oh, wow, there's all these film festivals devoted to it. Oh, wow, somebody's actually written about it. People are... There's this whole you, you are open up to, uh, so many people, and it probably happens with music, and it probably happens with a lot of things. But with something that's so unpopular, it's it usually hits you harder. Like, is because you're fairly well trained in this country and other countries. So like, well, it's not popular. It's probably not good. Right, right, right. <laughs> you know? Well, I, I, I mean, I gotta say, my mom was really, really wonderful in that mm-hmm. way of kind of training me away from thinking like that because I remember she always she always had her two little things you know she always told me you know don't don't forget Hitler was elected <laughs> <laughs> Hitler was elected does that mean yeah. he was a great guy you know and then the yeah. other thing she would say is like Coca-Cola is a favorite most popular drink on planet earth does that mean it's good for you you know mm. So uh, she was she was a real a radical thinker. My mom she really she really always trained me in that sense. You know, mm-hmm. I remember like when I was a teenager too. You know, maybe I was eighteen or seventeen, and I graduated from high school or something. And she was like, "Okay, graduation present. What do you want?" And I was like, "Well, I want this outfit." You know, there was this outfit of these like these really sleek cool white pants and this black and white top it was it was really like high couture fashion god knows where i was going to wear this thing but it was a really expensive outfit and i sort of wanted this outfit you know Mm -hmm. and 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 like she was like okay well you can have the outfit if you want that or you can go on a trip like go on an adventure to the sinai desert you know really and i was like like, literally that yeah literally and i was like well if you put it that way i guess i'd rather go on an adventure (laughs) <laughs> so she she kind of trained me that way, you know. It was were you still in which school? Was that still no, no, no. Which school was like age ten or something. Oh, okay. That's funny. So wait, did you go on the adventure? What did you do? Yeah, oh. that was my first adventure <laughs> with Tinka. Where did you guys go? We went to the Sinai. Wow. When that was when Israel was occupied by. I mean, sorry, when Sinai was occupied by Israel. Mm-hmm. And it was really undeveloped. Like now, Sharm el Sheikh and all these places are like, you know, back to back hotels. And mm-hmm. it wasn't like that. You know, it was really, 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 really incredible. And they had these like safaris that would go down from, from Israel down into the desert, like for, wow. for, you know, I don't know, 10 days. And, and me and Tinka went on this mm-hmm. safari thing. And I was just blown away. That's when I decided to learn Arabic because I, I kind of fell in love with the Bedouins and I wanted to learn Arabic and I wanted to go back. And then we went back and we lived down in the desert with the Bedouins for six months. Wow. Yeah, that was our first And you guys adventure. were like 18? Yeah. How old were you when you made Soft Warrior then? Soft Warrior was like, uh, gee, 20 or something. Just yeah. a few years later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, but that was our first adventure. You know, that was our first adventure of sort of me and Tinka having an adventure was mm-hmm. going to Sinai and living with the Bedouins. And then we made all the films after. But that was our first. You never got that outfit. I never got the outfit. Stupid outfit. Yeah. Adventure <laughs> is more fun. <laughs> uh, where was, where did you make, so you made um, Great Sadness of Zahara. 
year or two after that then after soft warrior yeah or, or the next sorry, year i wrote I it guess. down right here 83 i, for, I forgot and then uh, yeah 83 was was zohara and where was that 86 was Baraga. yeah where was where was zohara with the location that was israel and morocco okay yeah and that and was an you know that was a great adventure me and tinka great adventure right making yeah, it yeah how did you um how did how did that compare to making a film in Tel Aviv now? Well, it was totally different, yeah. you know, because the, that film was only me and Tinka, you mm. know, and I did the camera and she was the star. No crew. Zero crew. Mm. Yeah, zero. Um, and she had the light meter, so she would go, you know, be in the shot. I'd be like, okay, here's your costume. This is what you're wearing. You're sitting over there. And then she would, like, go into the shot, and then she'd, like, you know, take the light reading on herself and yell back to me, you know, 5.6 or whatever, you know? <laughs> right. So, like, just me and her. And um, and so we shot in Israel in Mount Shalim, which is a religious area, the religious area of Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Um, that's totally different because dissolution was actually – you know, a production with producers and a crew and, and you know, like more like what, what people think of as a normal film set. Mm-hmm. Um, and so how do you, do you feel that you were still inspired by Tel Aviv, its people, its atmosphere, even though there was a crew and it's a little more of a, yeah, yeah. There's a buffer there? As opposed to going around with a camera and really capturing. It was, to- it was really... Well, I think that, you know, my films and my f- my, my own personal inner journey and my films are, are like, you know, a, par- a parallel path. So at the time that I met, at the time that I made Zohara, it was a perfect expression of my inner condition at that time, which was, you know, very alone, very isolated, very alienated. And, and you see that isolated, alienated girl in, in these different settings and and then dissolution was uh was appropriately even though it's also an an alienated and isolated character on a certain level but but it's definitely about his relationship to the environment even though his relationship to the environment is one of violence um so the environment was there and the the whole crew and the cast being around i mean to me it's all you know actually part of this Part, was part of the experience, mm-hmm. but but what I was what I was filming was was really uh, felt you know the whole time I lived there you know just because the, f- the actual filming was two weeks you know it they didn't buffer anything you know because mm-hmm. it's you f- it's so strong there anyway they were part of it you know it was really organic in that sense and it was all in my neighborhood I mean the whole concept was you know make a film in your in your slippers, you know, I could walk to all the locations right outside my door. Right. And, and it just happened and it worked that crime and punishment vibe connected with you and the city, how you were seeing things. Yeah. That's how, that's how the whole thing came about that. I read that book and I went, wow, this would be, this is just so perfect here. Did you ever think about having a female lead even in that story? No. Because this is the first time, right? The first time you've, had a male lead yeah yeah i think that that was all about for me it was about uh giving kind of more full expression to that alienated masculine figure inside myself i've given like 20 plus years of attention to the alienated feminine 
you know, so maybe I'll make a love story next or something. <laughs> Doubtful. Happy love story coming up, yeah. Doubtful. <laughs> Maybe highly doubtful. Yeah, it's just no heat stroke is not exactly a happy love story. So. Right, uh, Kevin Thomas of the L.A. Times wrote that uh, disillusion is sort of existential film noir, which is actually a nice way. I love that yeah. to put it. Um, and he thought it was your most accessible film. Yeah, and he said arguably most accomplished too, right. which is kind of cool. I was interested to hear that. Uh, but I think it was, it's it's not, um, again, it's not like, it's not like you're making a kind of film where it's like, oh, well, you should have edited it this way. It's not like, it, you can yeah. look at a traditional film and you can be like, wow, there's these three scenes that don't seem to help the plot. Right. And the character development. Right. So your film, I think this film works as well as the other ones. I did think there was a difference in, I think there was more camera movement in this. Do you feel that or not? Well, I felt like more you had zooming around. Yeah, is that a product of HD, or is that I, something yeah. you want to explore all along? And now it's no, somewhat technological I, easier. I think that it, uh, it just you know the way I've always done camera for all my movies, every mm -hmm. single one, and um, I always request a zoom lens. I've mm. always used a zoom lens on all my movies mm. because I like to be able to spontaneously you know zoom in or zoom out you know without planning what ahead of time mm -hmm. um and and this this film like the, the camera movement i think shows the anxiety it, it reflects the anxiety of the character and um do you feel like the camera is when you're shooting something do you feel like you're portraying the audience watching something or is it more like this is what the character's feeling and i need a way to show that it's more what i'm feeling about the character but mm -hmm. there's also a lot of energy from the character coming in through the lens into me, you know? So it's kind of like what I, what I'm, I don't think consciously when I'm doing camera, it's, it's, it's intuitive, but it's, it's sort of a combo of my own feelings about what's happening in front of the camera and my, uh, expression back or reflection of what's happening inside the character to himself yeah that's it as opposed to like i have to practice this move and get no it right. no i never did that yeah <laughs> <laughs> no, it, no it feels intuitive and that's also some of the reviews talk about that too to where hey, people try to be smooth and it's like well the way you remember maybe the way you see something smooth but it's not the way you remember something right you don't remember it smooth Unfortunately, right. um, and then also the another good review from the LA Weekly that he talked about the uh, all your films having a preoccupation with violence and the effects, and that definitely is something that goes through whether it's literal. Well, actually, it is literal in all your films. There is always yeah, almost see, what all we got the films here? got actually. Let's got see, killing. There's, well, there's no, there's no, there's no overt violence in Zohara. No, just, well, just that rape scene or sort of like <laughs> so-called rape scene. Just that rape scene. Yeah, just that rape scene. <coughs> Braga rape murder. Yeah. Queen of Diamonds. Well, there's dead people and there's dead a suicide. There's that suicide with Who the elephants. Oh, right. Uh, we'll get to animals in a second too. Yep. Uh, bloody child. <laughs> the whole yeah. thing. Um, Phantom love. 
Well, it's riddled with violence with through the TV and through the, you know, the violence of okay. the war and right. and the but it's there isn't actually a murder. Mm. Well, there's the violence the guy's is violent to his family, the right. father and then there's the the boyfriend slaps her and it's pretty riddled with violence. Yeah, and dissolution obviously is riddled with violence. So, yeah, Somebody it's, it's got to be true. Right. And that's <coughs> is that do those things seem like plot points to you? How do you handle them internally? I mean, it's something no. you want to explore. Yeah. Well, I I really I, the way I really make all my f- movies is a process of um not I never feel like I'm really making the movie. I feel like the movie reveals itself to me and I just take notes, you know. So you know, if I get if I get you know if a film comes to me and I write it down, then I'm just kind of the instrument of getting this film made. I don't feel that it's kind of me making the film. Mm-hmm. You know, I I used to have fights with Tinka about that because she went, "Yeah, it is you making the film," <laughs> <laughs> you know, but I it doesn't feel that way to me exactly. I feel like I'm just kind of the, the, the arranger of this thing that's going on, you know? But it's interesting, too. And again, not growing up with TV, which is violent, which is supposed to fuck up kids because of right. violence, but you didn't have that. No. But obviously you're still like, I mean, you can't avoid the knowledge of violence in the world. It's impossible. It's in the world, but, you know, I mean, it's in my personal history. I mean, my f- on my father's side, um, his entire family was gassed in the concentration camps and he was the only survivor you know Um, my mother had all sorts of other horrendous things happen in her family Um, so I I come from also uh, a background of like trauma and and violence on a personal level as well as you know seeing it around Mm -hmm. so um, it's uh do you feel that you know more about it after making a film about it? That, uh, or that not like you're trying to make some large commentary about it, but do I know more about it? Does it make you? How do you feel like after? I mean, you have an idea about a violent act such as Bloody Child. Then, like we were talking about a little bit, right. when you watch it, do you feel like maybe understand isn't the right word? But do you feel like you maybe know more about it or try to understand it? To be honest, I have to say no. Mm-hmm. You know, after I, if I saw The Bloody Child, I would not be able, even that film remains for me the most terrifying of all my films, but that's the one that's really, really, really hard for me to watch. Um, I can't even sit through that film without mm. like drinking a bottle of vodka to this day. Wow. And I'm not a drinker, you know. <laughs> I mean, I'm... Yeah. So, um... <clears throat> I think it just, it's, it's, I had to, in a way, I had to block out the, like you asked me this before, but, you know, was I like aware when I was doing it? In a way, I had to not be aware because I wouldn't have been able to make the film. It was too terrifying. The material's so terrifying and the, the, the psychic place that, that's why I feel like I'm more like a channel. I'm a sort of channel the movies. And um, when I, when I watched The Bloody Child, um, I can't really watch that film, so I can't really even comment on that film because it's really scary. It's a scary film, and um, I, I appreciate the film. You know, I appreciate 
it on an artistic level. I'm not sure if I understood more about violence. I think I expressed a violent condition. I expressed this suicidal terror, violence, trap of violence. I think I expressed it really well. And maybe if you express something really well, it means you understand something about it. But um, I'm not sure that I, at least not intellectually, well, or maybe intellectually I could talk about it, you know, very easily because I understand intellectually. But emotionally, do I really understand? No. And disillusion doesn't wrap things up with a answer either, other than he... Well, in a, I mean, no, it doesn't wrap, but it, it does give a suggestion of a direction mm-hmm. for salvation, you know? It does give a suggestion to, to, you know, move out of total disconnection towards a, a sense of, of, of faith and connection. And... Uh, the character doesn't actually take that step. He he kind of approaches that step. You know, he approaches that step, and we don't know if he'll take that step. Mm-hmm. Uh, wouldn't you agree? Mm-hmm. At the end, yeah. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's the right kind of. There's there's suggestions and answers. Uh, there's suggestions rather than an answer. Yeah. And maybe that's you know he goes to confession a lot. Yeah. In the film, of course, is supposed to give you an answer the way therapy is supposed to give you an answer the way things are supposed to the way you wish somebody was like oh by the way this is what it really means <laughs> yeah. it doesn't happen in life and shouldn't happen in movies necessarily right this type of film and i think disillusion does that too right was there ever something like that was there ever did you actually write it and then that's it and you went and filmed it or I mean, well, you talk a little bit more about how it revealed itself, but like, because you're working with an actual book that you're inspired by, did that affect? Like, did you feel like you had to have a so-called ending? No, you know, I, I mean, it was the book was sort of a jumping-off point, you yeah. know, as opposed to trying to. We weren't trying to film the book or anything like that. Right. Always tried to follow an approach of. Um, pristine expression of what I'm trying to get at you know and then so so the bloody child was the most difficult because it was pristine expression of the chaos and confusion of violence so that was really like walking a very thin thin blue line to figure that one out and working with on child because you worked with a lot of real marines yeah how did you see them sort of handle the subject? Well, they were they were great the because yeah, I mean, that was really an amazing experience working with the Marines. So it's, they were natural actors. Now, Tinka said, "Well, you know, they're perfect because they're relaxed with their bodies and they know how to follow orders." <laughs> you know, it's like that's what right. you want an actor relaxed in his body and knows how to follow orders, but. They were just so relaxed that mm. uh, about hanging around and, you know, I would just give them subject matter. You know, it's like, what do you guys want to talk about? Well, all they ever talk about is ammo, what they call ammo, and like girls, you know, like right. ammo and girls. And that was it. I didn't really have to give them very much direction. They were like, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, it was crazy. Yeah. You 
do a lot of heavy work and thoughtful work with sound design. Yeah. Sometimes that includes voice. Sometimes that includes room tone. Right, that's true. And you think about that a lot. And it's yeah. usually you doing it? No, or, always, not yeah. usually. Yeah. yeah. And that's yeah. part of the editing process? Though? Yeah, yeah. And actually, I love I love doing sound. It's just, I just totally love it. And, and Dissolution, actually, I tried to put more sound on that film. You know, mm. I tried to sort of experiment with a much heavier soundtrack than it, than it like has Like in right what now. way? Not music? Well, n- not music, but, I, gee, I can't even re- remember all the things I laid on. It was like, I, I essentially wanted a diegetic track, but I just put too much. You know, it was almost like my first, my first sound pass was like, I was afraid to just like let it be, you know, and I was like, well, I'll add this, and I'll add this, and I'll add a siren, which I have, but I'll add... 20 sirens you know and i'll add i can't remember all the things i added and and then i watched the film and i was like fuck i ruined it you know <laughs> you mean police sirens I, and stuff. well like, yeah but like all sorts sounds of, of the all, city yeah sounds of the city but i can't remember all the things i put in it but i put in a lot of sound like dogs and cats and i don't know what you know and that, that's, and I, is that I, how you I felt? I killed it i killed it i killed it and i was like oh my god okay now i can go back and slash it all out you know, and is I, that how you felt like when you were just trying to sleep at night in Tel Aviv? There was all <laughs> there a- action. Was, there was a lot of action. Right. <laughs> but it can feel so fake once in a movie. Yeah, it feels fake in a movie, but but actually, I think in 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 that case, is I was just I was scared of the. Um, in a way, I was a little scared of the, to be s- the sparseness of the film and the and the the desolation of the film and so I was trying to fill it up you know and make it more palatable but I just ruined it so Mm -hmm. I was like okay well it's not gonna be it's not gonna you know it's not gonna happen it's gonna have to be brutal like all my other films (laughs) another brutal film (laughs) you know what looks good is all that you've got this thing about unusual animals oh yeah you've got something about freaky animals (laughs) elephants Right. Scorpions, octopus, octopi, right. and snails. Snails, right? Right. Snails. Ain't cats, dogs, horses. Yeah. Cats are a little weird, but mostly it's mostly the other stuff. Yeah, horses. A lot of horses. What is the? Is there a very obvious connection there, or is that just like? I mean, your films already have sort of this mystical feel for the people. So are those yeah. sort of like the mystical end of animals, as opposed to just having a pet? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, these are these are animals with a lot of uh, uh, a lot of symbolic resonance too. You know, a lot of lot of intense energy. You know, people just react. You know, you see that scorpion. I freaked out when they brought that <laughs> scorpion to the set. You know, you that had a thing scorpion was wrangler. fucking big. Yeah, we did. We had a scorpion wrangler. But that poor scorpion was more scared, you know, yeah. than we were. <laughs> but uh, but it's always like, do you feel like, I almost feel like the people don't necessarily, the characters don't necessarily see the animals. That's true. Yeah, they're they're almost like mystical or in, in the in the bloody child. Tinka's the only one who sees the horse. Mm-hmm. And, um, well, I would say that um, David Byer's character in, uh, in Dissolution, he definitely sees the scorpion because he's trying to kill it. Right. You know, and the snail, you know, <coughs> this, this this woman wrote me a letter about the film that really moved me. You know, she was like, she said her favorite scene was when, when he sleeps with a snail and she goes, 
and the snail is so strong and powerful compared to the man. <laughs> it's like, whoa, that's so awesome. You know? <laughs> I never would have really <laughs> phrased it like that, but it's so interesting. So it's yeah. also like, you know, his relationship to to the natural world and well, and maybe choosing to see a sign or not see a sign. Yeah, see, yeah, exactly. Well, I think there's, I, I think, I hope that I film the animals with respect for the animal, you know, and it's not mm-hmm. just like that the animals sort of get space, you know, to be, uh, a, be a real character and not just a, you know, part of the scenery or something like right. there. They really have, like, they get to, they get to have their screen time, like in a serious way, serious respect for the energy of the animal. <laughs> yeah. How hard was the python, though, at Phantom Love? Oh, that I was... I mean, that's that there was, on the set. That's... Oh, yeah. Well, we had, a, you know, we had the snake wrangler, and, you know, it's L.A., so they show up with a selection of, like, seven or eight anacondas <laughs> that you can choose from. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, I want the biggest one. <laughs> you know, so they, they put the snake down, and, and uh, the thing is, is that the snake did not want to move. It just lies there. Oh, really? You know, and you can't really you have to do something with heat, like heat and well, lamps. Well, heat or like or like they poke it with a stick, you oh. know. But then they're but then they're in the shot and they have to run out of the shot. So, you know, it's 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 not like you can tell these animals what to do, you know. So you just have to do like take after take after take and like pray that you get get a good shot. And and eventually you do, of course. You know, if you do it enough times, the snake does some interesting actions you know mm-hmm. but some of those takes um the snake just lay there and didn't move that was that was right. uh obviously i didn't choose those takes but but there were quite a few like that it's an expensive actor for no movement too <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's pretty right intense. yeah and so you have horses both uh, the bloody child the horse the black horse comes and goes and then you repeat the horses here in disillusion do you have does that do the does the horse represent something very literal for you, or you just you feel like it invokes an atmosphere that you want to portray in a film? Yeah, it's uh, it's more like uh, like I said, it just sort of came to me, you know, like as a vision, and then I just film it as opposed to knowing mm-hmm. what it's supposed to mean or portray or something. But I think that in in the bloody child and in dissolution the horses really have a double a double symbolic resonance like on the one hand it's it's powerful and life affirming you know and on the other hand it's almost like from the gates of hell you know that they've come out so it's it's kind of that double like life death kind of symbol we should end talking about the film you're trying to make next which is heat stroke uh, yes, it's, um... Not that you have to make a big ad for it, but... No, I, uh, yeah, I want to... Uh, anyone hearing this wants to invest in the film, just feel free to shoot me an email. <laughs> NinaMekis.com. NinaMekis.com. Um, so, uh, it's, uh, it's set in Cairo, Egypt, and in Los Angeles, and interestingly, I wrote the script a while ago, and I wrote the script before, um... <clears throat> definitely before the latest events in Egypt, but there's scenes in mm-hmm. the f- there's scenes in the film that are just like right out of things that happened. I mean, it's really weird. It's wow, like, like prophetic, the, like the crowds. 
Yeah, like wild, huge demonstration in the streets of Egypt with with burning, you know, burning effigies of George Bush or whoever, you know, mm-hmm. um, American flag and, uh, um, you know, um, cars burning and, you know, like huge demonstrations in the streets of Egypt. That was written before. Mm-hmm it happened and uh, other other elements like that that seemed weirdly prophetic um but the story is more low-key personal yeah the story is once again you know highly personal and definitely violent and um uh it's uh it's really a story about two women two sisters who who are estranged and um, one is a celebrity who lives in LA and one is the wife of a diplomat who's stationed in Cairo and it's sort of a quest film of the celebrity um, trying to contact her her sister which is it's kind of a in that sense like persona-esque you know these two women that are Mm -hmm. that are one side of the self and so it's it's kind of like phantom love in that way too yeah right I'm sure you'll... <laughs> you found a way to make this many films. I'm sure you'll be making this film soon. God willing, God willing, <laughs> goddess willing. <laughs> Thanks again for doing this. Okay, thank you, Mike. Thanks for listening to Cinemad Podcast number one. Nina Menke's Disillusion, along with a retrospective of all of her films, will be shown at theaters across the country in late 2011, going into 2012. Go to cinemadpresents.com and ninamenkes.com for more info.